This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm privileged today to get to visit with Dr. Keith Starkey. Dr. Starkey served as the long-term chief clinical officer at a great system in the United States at Mercy Health System. He's now serving as a senior advisor of the system. He's had a great career in leadership and, and, and a great thinker. We're going to talk to Dr. Starkey today about really a, a, a different subject. Really, what could be done to improve the healthcare system in the United States. Um, we think of it as a great but imperfect system. Everybody has different perspectives on that. We think of it as great but challenged, great with some inequities, you know, just to set the stage. But what can be done to improve it? Dr. Starkey, I'll you to take a moment to introduce yourself. Then we'll get right to cut right to the chase. What can be done to improve the U.S. healthcare system? So thank you, Scott. I, you know, as I, I'm an internist by training. And so as uh, someone who did practice in primary care for 30 years. Um, I think I've had, it's been a great opportunity to understand some of the um, challenges that patients experience. And then in, in my leadership role to see some of the challenges in trying to deliver that, um, that the care that's, that's required. Um, the, you know, it's what's unique about our health system is we have some of the best healthcare in the world, and yet we do not deliver it um, universally across our our population. Um, I think COVID has been a uh, real eye opener for our, um, for folks in terms of understanding how great that barrier to um, delivering of care can be. Um, some of the some of the realities around um, patients accessing care, um, some of the realities around patients not being able to afford care. And so we, in the U.S., we have this unique reality that we, um, we do, if we have the, the resources and the dollars, we can receive the best care in the world. Um, and I think, you know, as, as a physician, um, I, it's frustrating to see that kind of gap that that has occurred, um, and some of it very much related, I think, to our payment model um, that we've had. And you know, as we try and look forward, the critical piece of this is is really trying to drive towards, I think, trying to drive towards the um, the value proposition. Um, if, if in fact we're providing value um, in terms of quality over cost, um, the opportunity to really spread um, resources appropriately will will be there. I mean, we we know we over we know in the U.S. we overtreat, um, which ends up at times causing patient harm. Um, and, and so really trying to, uh, again, if we use the delivery of quality, safe care um, as our goal and understand what the cost is to deliver that care, um, I, I, I think the dollars are there for us to deliver equitable care across, uh, across the country. Yeah, I, I want to ask you a couple questions about a couple of things you said. One of the things you said, which I think is so right on and all of us experience in our own lives, is that if you have the resources, you can get to the specialist. You can get what you need, whatever it might be, primary care, specialization, stuff like that. 
you and I probably both know as part of what is probably a more privileged class in our country, that if you want to get to the right specialist, you almost have to know somebody. You almost have to call somebody. You almost have to work through it. Whereas if you're not privileged in our country, it's impossible to get to the right person, or it's very hard. And, and you don't have the relationships and the connections to get to the right person, which is a, a huge inequity in our system. The, the second question I'd love to, um, to, to comment on or question is, is the move to value-based care really enough to get us to access that we need for our underprivileged communities, or do we also need just more doctors and nurses and more providers as well? Don't we need sort of both to really get the amount of coverage we need, the amount of access we need? Coverage is a different issue, but to really get access, to really sort of strengthen or flood communities and areas, don't we need more doctors and nurses too? So Scott, I think that's a really, um, really great question. And I, I think I would um, respond to that in, from two perspectives. One is um, we do need, I, I think it's clear that we do need more primary care physicians and we do need more nurses. The primary care world has, um, has in the U.S. has struggled a bit uh it to um attract um uh, uh, people into it uh, it's it's not it's not as lucrative as some of our other specialties etc and so really focusing on developing a broader primary care delivery model i think it is important we know from the pandemic that nurses are sh are short we we really do need uh more nurses the other piece of the puzzle, though, I think, is that when we are able to combine um, multidisciplinary teams um, in how we deliver primary care, we can greatly expand um, the, the delivery even today, and particularly with the addition of digital, um, digital interface. Um, the, the digital portal really does allow us to um, be much more flexible in terms of um, need to see an, uh, a physician in the moment as opposed to being able to perhaps get a, a question or a fairly simple, straightforward um, diagnosis made um, um, via telemedicine and, and, telehealth. And, and your point, this is a fascinating point about primary care. I, I do agree relatively completely with the mantra that we need more primary care physicians throughout the country. And at the same time, in some ways, primary care physicians are easier to leverage with the right talent with them than our specialists. So in some ways, it's very easy and it's become very politically popular to say we need a ton more primary care physicians, and we do. But, but comment on the specialty issue. I know everybody says, well, specialists get paid so well, they get this, they get that, we don't need any more, we hate them. And we all feel that way until you need a specialist. Don't we need to make it easier to be a specialist too, not just a primary care physician? Because right now you're, not, you're 32 before you even get to start practicing and you're burnt out by 48. How do you deal with some of those issues too? Don't we need both? specialists and primary care physicians? So, Scott, I, I think that your, your point's really well taken. The, I think the answer is yes. 
Um, I think that um, the distribution is part of the challenge. So if you happen to um, live in a in Boston, New York, um, St. Louis, um, your access to specialty care is much easier because you have um, the academic medical centers and where um, specialists are trained who then tend to not uncommonly stay in that community. So it's, I think it's more of a um, geographic distribution uh, point. A hundred percent. If we point. went back a generation, we went back a generation, veterans coming out of the army, people immigrating, went to, went to every community in the country. Right. Now, between husbands and wives, between spouses, between family pressures, between a million different things, they all gravitate to the major cities, and then a huge proportion graduate to the suburbs of those cities or to the higher-paying clients of those cities, the commercial payment versus Medicare and Medicaid. So you do end up with huge inequities and distribution issues as well. Your point is really well taken. You know, I think the other thing, one thing I do um, want to go back to is is this issue of um, – primary care being able to be, um, I would say, more developed in terms of availability of, um, so, so when you think of the major health issues of our country today, you talk about obesity, you talk about diabetes, you talk about behavioral health. When you create teams within the primary care model that help deliver um, the, that care, that starts to create that greater distribution across a population now um, that can improve the overall health of communities. And I, so I do think that um, that is an untapped, there are, there are, there are models and it, that exist today in this and, country, and, but it's, it, there's it, opportunities. And, and let me ask you about those two issues. Cause like, and, and, and let's talk about that for a second. You, you've made a, a, a really important point about obesity and things that we do to ourselves. And, and I wanna talk about that for a moment because I always think of this as an issue of supply and demand and access. That we've got huge shortages of primary care physicians, specialists and nurses, and we have huge access problems amongst our underprivileged communities. Now, I, I look at some like me, who's a little out of shape, eat too much cheese, too much cream, um, I, I've got you know I've got a family history of cancer. I don't consider the dermatologist as much as I should to make sure things are safe. How do I deal with actually, I mean, are these things that are movable, getting the population to do things they should do for themselves? Like, I can't help myself with two creams in the coffee every day or more, a cheese. I don't go to the dermatologist as much as I should to make sure that I'm not having cancerous growth. How do you deal with population behaviors, you know, even though we can't control them? I know I can control mine. I just don't. But how do we deal with those things that are such a big part of the healthcare picture, too? You know, I, I don't eat as healthy as I should, and I've got access. I'm not in a food desert. If I wanted to pick up the green stuff and the, and the fruits and vegetables, I could. But how do you deal with it when so much of it is within our own control versus the health system's control? Are there things we could do about that, too? Yeah, great question. Uh, I, I do think that um, that is a challenge that has become more pronounced over time, and part of that is the the availability of the right information to help um, people make good decisions. Um, sometimes it is an affordability issue. So you mentioned, you know, yeah, when I, yes, when I go to the grocery store, I can buy the healthiest things and it's, uh, it is going to cost more money. If I uh, came from a poor family, my ability to uh, purchase 
um, the healthiest foods are going to be limited because I need to be able to fill my children's stomachs. So there is there is that piece, I think. But I do believe that we have opportunities to translate more effectively um, health information um, for um, for our patients and uh, and our population. That's it's. Um, it's really, really challenging because, as, you, as we all know, the, the information changes as we learn. COVID's been a great example of things that were initially thought turned out not to be true, and then credibility with healthcare um, is damaged. Um, so how do we create that, um, that ability to provide the right information and to help people make the right choices? And then I think the other piece is how do you incent people? Because it is really around what's, what is the incentive? Because if I have to do something that may impact my health 20 years from now, it, it, it's, it's not going to have the same impact as if I've got to do something immediately. And so creating um, different thinking around in, in incentivizing the population is, is part of it. And I don't, I'm not, I don't propose to have any of those, those answers. I think it's, um, it's something we as a society have to learn together. But your point, your, but your point is really well taken because if one waits till they've had their first heart attack or their first outbreak of cancer, now they're in a spot where their odds of having another one are far, far worse. Whereas if you start taking care of it 10, 15 years ago, you're in just much better position as you age to not be stricken by these things. And, 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 and the reason it's such an important issue is because we should solve certain things like access and physician supply and nurse supply and so forth. But as, as we all know, so much of this comes back to social determinants of health that are important, uh, not just in impoverished zip codes, but all, all along the lines. They're, they're far worse than impoverished zip codes, no question about it. But there's a lot of us that don't deal with our health issues and social determinants as well as we should, and thus we burden the health system more too. You know, Scott, I think some of it is too around to your point is, is it's been there, but the visibility um, and, and frankly, the metrics around it um, have become much more evident with COVID. So for, from a very um, societal perspective, COVID has provided us with much greater information and hopefully that gets translated into policy to help move the bar. In the past, it's been kind of we've been aware, but not to the level um, that we see today. I think that point is so well taken. Like we all knew there were social inequities in healthcare, in access, and that there were different social determinants of health. It just has become so broadly clear in this period of time. When you look at this, if you're in dense inner city populations your immune systems, your, your, your ability to be contracted by an illness are so much higher and your immune systems are so much more beat up if you've not been healthy and you've been in a situation where it doesn't make it easy to be healthy. So, so many of these points are, are, have been amplified so much in the COVID time. Dr. Starkey, I want to thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time so much. It's so fascinating to hear perspectives on what could be done to improve health care in the United States. I, I find it fascinating. So thank you very, very much. Oh, you're welcome.